Hi friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is to work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, over the next five years. If you're here for the first time today, well welcome, and why not consider joining us on this amazing uh, journey together by going back to the beginning, maybe having to play catch up for a few months, but go through the whole Bible with us over the next five years or so. A quick note if you're a, big, a first timer, there are resources always, free resources always attached to this podcast. There's always a transcript of roughly what I've said in each message, along with links to ways in which you can connect with the ministry. Those links and that transcript is always found in the audio version of the podcast. Now it's hosted on buzzsprout.com, you'll find it there, but it really doesn't matter. You can access those resources wherever you happen to be getting your podcast from. But today we're launching into a new chapter. We're looking at Genesis chapter 42. Uh, We'll spend a couple of days in here, I believe. So with that in mind, uh, I'll be back at the end just to update you on a few things. But with that in mind, we'll just jump straight into the text and begin the next episode together. I'll see you at the end. Bye for now. Okay, here we are. We're launching off in Genesis chapter 42. And I'd like to begin this study of this chapter by asking you a question. And that question is, have you ever experienced injustice? I suppose in our lives, we've all at one time or another felt we've been treated unfairly. But have you ever experienced uh, what sometimes is called a gross injustice? Well, looking at this passage, we're going to consider over the next few episodes, this narrative from chapter 42 is, we're going to look to someone, someone's response to circumstances where they've experienced one gross injustice after another. But then I thought to myself, well, this term gross is bandied around quite a bit. So I decided to look the word up in a English dictionary. And I find that the way the word is described there as it means something is flagrant and extreme. And then it gives an example of the use of the word gross. And you know that what the dictionary gives as an example of use of that word within a sentence. And the example that they use is the term someone experienced a gross injustice. So apparently these two words are more linked together than even I was aware. But the question I want us to ask, to consider, and to learn today from by asking that question is, how should we handle such a thing? Now, we all experience injustice, but when things get really hard, when the injustice becomes focused and personal against us, how should we handle it? How should we handle situations where we feel we're facing a gross injustice? Well, as you know, if you've been with us for a while today, we've been working through Genesis. And in this last couple of months, we're, well, we're now well into the life of Joseph. And if there was ever a man who experienced a gross injustice, it was this guy, Joseph. Remember, he's done absolutely nothing wrong. Maybe as a young man, he was a little bit immature and he had a dream. And when he, he was a young teenager, he had a dream, which he told his brothers and his brothers and his family really didn't like it. 
a dream in which he told them that he would be ruling over his brothers, his eleven brothers in fact, and even have authority over the whole family. And they didn't like that at all. In fact, it caused them to feel great jealousy and envy towards him, allied with the fact that his father really kind of showed favouritism to Joseph. You could understand the brothers becoming envious, but that jealousy grew and grew into out-and-out hatred. And then came the injustices, and then came gross injustice. He was sold by his brothers into slavery, behind the father's back without his knowledge, and then he ends up in prison in Egypt for something he hasn't done. You remember the story. He ended up in service in a role in the house of uh, Potiphar, the, the captain of the guard, and then Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, and he rejects her. He does the right thing, but she then turns on him and accuses him of attempted rape. And because of that, he ends up in prison. Then whilst in prison, he helps a fellow prisoner by also interpreting a dream for him. And the guy promised that he would say something, that he would put a good word in for him when he got out of prison and got his job back with Pharaoh. But he completely forgot to do so. So this young man, Joseph, has experienced not just one injustice in his life, but one injustice after another. So that is a real catalogue of injustice isn't it every time in his life it seems that joseph turned around he was treated unfairly and unjustly so the question is how does he handle it and what can we learn from his responses to such situations of gross injustice well amazingly by the providential hand of god as we discovered last week Working in the everyday events that surround the life of Joseph, he does get out of prison and he ends up being elevated to what amounts to being prime minister or vice president of the whole nation of Israel. And that happened because he had the gift to be able to interpret dreams. Having been remembered by the cupbearer who he interpreted the dream for in prison, he's brought out in order to try and help interpret dreams that Pharaoh's having that are troubling him. And he interprets those by telling them about the situation of years of plenty followed by famine. And because of that, Pharaoh puts him in charge of the full supply for the whole nation of Egypt. Because the Lord revealed to him, of course, that there's going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And because of that knowledge, then Pharaoh puts him in charge of the plan to store food, to put it in reserve for those seven good years for later to be available and drawn out during the famine years. But anyway, as we're opening here today, Genesis 42, we have to remember we're dealing with a young man who has been dealt with unjustly for pretty much all his life. He has experienced one injustice after another, but now, almost miraculously, now, by the providential hand of God, he's been raised up into a place of power and he's the one who's responsible for the planning, organisation and the dealing with the famine. And at the beginning of chapter 42, verse 1, we're going to see that whilst all this is going on, what is happening back in Palestine with Joseph's father Jacob and with his brothers, who it seems are also experiencing famine. So let's pick up the text in verse 1, where it tells us, When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you just keep looking at each other? He continues, I've heard there's grain in Egypt. 
Go down there and buy some for us, so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. So that's an interesting scenario. They're running out of food, but at least we can see they've still got some money left. And Jacob, the father of the family, the father of the clan, if you like, he finds out that there's food to be had in Egypt. Now there are 11 sons at this point of time. Of course, Joseph is in Egypt, but the other 11 are still back at home. And the, the text says they're just sitting around looking at each other. And the father says, why are you just looking at each other? It amuses me, that line. Thousands of years old, but it still sounds to me like something, exactly like something a father would say to his sons, doesn't it? What are you sitting around just doing nothing? Why don't you do something? How about going down to Egypt? We know there's food there. Go down there and buy some food. So they agree to do that. But then have you noticed the text says Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt? How many sons did Jacob have in total? Twelve. How many are in Egypt? One. So how many are then left with Jacob? Joseph's in Egypt. That should leave eleven left back with Jacob. So how many are sent down to Egypt to buy grain? Now if you're reading the text, you can't help just notice, it almost slaps you in the face, that ten are going, not eleven. So one is missing. They don't all go. And furthermore, the verse also describes him as Joseph's ten brothers. It doesn't say Jacob's ten sons. It says Joseph's ten brothers go down to Egypt's. Now, Bible experts tell me that the choice of words that are particularly selected here is because the author is deliberately wanting to write the story from Joseph's point of view. And it's pointing out that it is brothers who are coming to him now. And that's why they're not described as Jacob's son. Let's just pick up in verse 4. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others, because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Israel is, of course, the new name of Jacob. So Jacob wants to keep Benjamin, this other son, this youngest son, safe at home, lest any mishap or even calamity might befall him. Now that's interesting. Why not one of the other ten? Well, clearly the implication is seems to be that you remember that, that Joseph had always been Jacob's favourite. He's described as the apple of his eye, so to speak. And now, as far as he knows, he thinks his original favourite son Joseph is dead. So apparently he's got a new favourite now, and that's Benjamin, his youngest. So he's willing for them all to go, but he decides he's going to keep Benjamin back in Canaan in case any calamity should fall upon the family. So the story opens here with Jacob telling, almost commanding the other ten sons, the other ten brothers of Joseph, to get down to Egypt and try and buy some grain, because otherwise the whole extended family is going to starve to death. And what happens next in the narrative is they're seen to get to Egypt and they meet Joseph. And remember, they've not seen Joseph for a very long time. One author, commentary I read, estimated that the brothers at this point had not seen each other for 21 years. But it, you can definitely say this has been a very long time 
since they last saw him. Now what will follow in this passage is a sort of verbal confrontation. Things are going to get a little bit complicated, so I'm going to try and simplify that conversation by going through it systematically. And because there's a bit of a spar, a spat going on here, I'm going to divide it, if you like. I'm going to use the imagery of a boxing match and call it round one, round two, round three, round four, and round five of what is a very testy conversation. All these rounds of conversation are going to be found in the verses between verses 6 and 24. So let's begin with round 1, starting in verse 6, which tells us, Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognised them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognised his brothers, they did not recognise him. So Joseph immediately recognises this group of men as his brothers, but they don't recognise him. That's important. All right, so that's round one. The first part of the conversation, and it's pointed out, immediately that Joseph is governor of the land and they come before him. We know from the previous passage that he's in charge of everything. He's in charge of all the food distribution. He is virtually absolute power and is the only person that he's accountable to would be Pharaoh the king. So it is completely natural that this group of 10 arrive from Canaan that they should be brought before him. Joseph clearly either managed the food distribution himself or at least he had full administration in other words an account was given to him and he was responsible all people that needed to access food would have had to go through Joseph in some way to get at some of the preciously stored food and that's the point being made here but the text is very clear in pointing out to us that the brothers don't recognize him and as I've mentioned, of course, 20 years have passed since they've seen him, at least 20 years. And they certainly wouldn't have expected this person that they've come before to be their brother, the governor, would they? You know, as a matter of fact, it happens to me all the time. If I meet or bump into someone in a certain situation where they're out of context, often I won't recognize them. Sometimes I'll pause and think, you know, I know that person but I'm not sure where I know them from. You know, I know that person, and you have to stop and think for a minute, where do I know this person from? Sometimes I can place them, sometimes I can't. Sometimes, if it's someone out of context, I don't even recognise them as a person I know from elsewhere. But in this case, they clearly don't even recognise him at all. And we can easily justify why they don't recognise him. But the point is, he recognized them. And it tells us in verse 7, he spoke roughly to them. Now the Hebrew word translated roughly means harshly, cruelly, even severely. Now the text will later tell us that he speaks to them through a translator. But what is being said is really firm, really harsh. And they have no way of knowing who he was. But, of course, he knew who they was. And the fact that he's using a translator 
and not face-to-face speaking the same language to them would also make it much more likely that they wouldn't recognise him. Anyway, that's the end of round one, the first round. The second round begins in verse nine, where it says, Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. So in round one, he recognises them. And then in round two, he accuses them of being spies. Now, of course, you know he knows they're not actually spies. He's just giving them a hard time. This would have been a serious charge and a serious accusation to make at that time. Even today, in many countries of the world, spying is still a capital offence. So you can believe it would have been very likely a capital offence way back here in these days in ancient Egypt. So to accuse them of being spies was serious stuff. It's certainly going to make them think about their situation. But their response to that accusation I find quite interesting. Their defence is, we are brothers. We are all one man's son and we are honest men. That's the defence. We are brothers. What has the fact that they are brothers got to do with anything? Well, reading around this, it seems to be the theory would be that if they were spies, it would have been likely it would have been done as a military operation at that time and soldiers would have been sent. So it's unlikely that a group of soldiers would all be related to each other. And in those days, a father would never send send, or expected to send all of his sons on a single military operation for fear that the whole family could have been wiped out. So the argument seems to be it's not reasonable that they should be considered spies because they are all brothers. And that's the end of round two. Round three begins in verse 12. No, he said to him, you've come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with her father and one is no more. All right. They're now letting slip some information that is useful and that Joseph can draw out and unpack them. He can use it to make them consider their own situation and how they've got to where they are at the minute. But also, in a sense, he can use it against them. So where is the one that's missing back in the land? And who is the one that's missing? It's Benjamin. And who is the one that is no more? Or who they saying is more? That is, of course, Joseph, who they don't realise is standing before him. They don't even know they're talking to Joseph, and they are describing him as being no more, because, of course, as far as they're concerned, he was most likely dead. Round four picks up at verse fourteen. Joseph said to them, "It's just as I told you. You are spies, and this is how you will be tested." As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother, and the rest of you will be kept in prison, so that your words may be tested to see that if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. So he's really going to test them. He's going to put them into prison for three days whilst one of them is sent back 
to get the younger brother. Now he's really in a position, he's got real control, he's really in a position where if he wanted he could pour out some real hurt on these guys. And that would be reasonable, one might say, on the basis of the great injustices he had previously experienced at their hands. He's really in the position to make them suffer now. He's really, if he wanted to, could choose to take revenge, if he chose to do so. But what will he do? Well, remember, at this point, he's just pretending to not accept their explanation, and he's giving them a hard time. But he knows, in reality, what the true situation is. And it's this point we come to round five. And that starts in verse 18 and goes all the way down through to verse 24. But you know what? We'll pick up that final round in the next episode. Okay, folks, that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining me. Remember, there's uh, always uh, links to my resources to my Facebook page, YouTube channel, and even my Patreon page, uh, which is a place where I put exclusive and extra content. You're very welcome to use those links to access that wherever you wish. There are plans from September to put some more structured discipleship training type course materials as a way that I can hopefully help develop people in their giftings uh, in service of the church and the first of those is going to be a guide to creating bible study or expository preaching uh, material so if you're interested in that drop on to the patreon page the link is there but the main thing i want to say is just thank you so much for joining me there's so many thousands of us now who have made the commitment together to work through the Bible, not just read the Bible, but to study the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, over however long that takes. So a really special thank you to you for joining me on this. It's an amazing journey we're going on. And I'd like to especially thank and ask for, for your prayers, because this is a huge commitment 25 minutes of teaching a day, I reckon, roughly. It's like doing a sermon a day. So pray that I might have the time, the resources, emotionally, spiritually, uh, and just sort of practically to, to enable this uh, amazing project to come to its fruition. And a useful thing to do is to share this or to like it or even to review it because these are ways in which more and more people can find this work and we can help more and more people get the study of the Bible uh, make it part of the rhythm of their daily lives but we'll leave it there for today and I do hope I'll see you right back here tomorrow well it'll be tomorrow for me it'll be whatever day you do your next uh, episode but thank you so much for joining me and I'll see you again soon on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.